1: Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's coming up this hour. The Nasdaq having another volatile session. It was trying to make it three days in a row earlier on, but we've just turned negative. We managed to climb back to where we were in early May. So is all of this a bear market bounce, a durable bottom? We'll explore that and look at whether tech is seeding permanent market shared energy as Exxon and others hit a new all-time high and oil climbs above $120 bucks a barrel today. Plus, new rules for the stock market from the chair of the SEC. Now we'll hear from one of chair Gensler's biggest critics what he warns could be the fallout plus five below neo and signet jewelers they've all got earnings coming up and we've got the action the story and the trade ahead in earnings exchange but first let's get the latest on these markets okay. the unpleasant task goes back to tom they're, Chu.
2: They're, they're about as red right now as your dress <laughs> but at one point they were floating the green but here's what i would say at the highs and lows of the session we're only talking about fractional gains or losses so it's been a relatively tight trading range. So the market narrative is one where traders are maybe still trying to figure out what to do with this market especially ahead of that big CPI print on inflation on Friday. So maybe not a lot of massive movement ahead of that. So we'll see what happens here. But the Dow Industrial is down 225 points, 32,955, two-thirds of a percent loss there, three-quarter percent losses for the S&P, 41.26, the last trade there, down 34 points, and 67-point losses for the NASDAQ, which is at 12,107. One place that is seeing a nice surge right now is Chinese internet and Chinese technology overall. Alibaba, a big gainer in the session so far, U.S.-listed shares up 12%, 4.5% gains for Tencent Music, and JD.com among some of the NASDAQ 100 names on the rise today. And this is all because Chinese regulators have approved a nice small slate of new video games. So why is that such a big driver? Well, it might indicate that this easing of regulatory concerns in China is still kind of taking hold here. So investors are getting incrementally more positive on China if the government is going to back off some of that big regulatory risk that they put on the market there. That's the reason why, again, many of these stocks are well off their highs for the year, but still getting a big gain so far today. And then one other place to watch right now is Intel shares. Big drag there. Keep an eye on those particular ones. Down about 5% right now. So a big driver for the Dow there in semis. Tech all the way here. Kel, I'll send things back over to you.
1: right right Don. Thank you very much. Now, the three major averages are still positive on the week so far. And my next guest says we could see another 7% upside in the near term, but she doesn't think it's the start of a new bull market and says things will have to get worse before they start to get better. For more, I'm joined by New Edge Wealth CIO, Cameron Dawson. Cameron, it's great to see you again. And,
3: and what do you mean by have to get worse before it'll get better? So we think that the data has to get a lot worse in order to justify a pivot to accommodation by the Fed because we are starting to see some easing in the labor market. But we're starting off at such record-tight levels that it really wouldn't justify a pivot to accommodation by the Fed. And the reason why we think Fed accommodation is important is because if you look at the last cycle, every time we had a correction and then a bull market coming out of it, we had a pivot from the Fed. It was a 11, 16, 18, 20, every single one of those times the Fed was supportive and we simply don't see the Fed becoming supportive in the very near term.
1: And all of this kind of sets you up for what kind of uh, sort of tactical strategy in stocks right now? Because it's not like you're saying get out.
3: No, we we think that the the opportunity really is focusing on quality. And it's really quality at a good price because we want companies that can generate strong cash flows, have good balance sheets, have optionality in this part of the cycle. We want companies that can be opportunistic to be able to deploy capital, whether it's buying back stock at the cheap or doing an opportunistic M&A. But we can't pay any price for that. So we have to be very selective and very disciplined about valuation. So instead, of buying all sectors and kind of blanket buying the entire sector what we're finding is a lot of opportunities within sectors because we're now seeing a lot of evidence of big dispersion within sectors so lots of winners and losers so we'll be selective within the sectors a
1: couple examples of that you know machinery within the
3: industrials you know some of the pharma biotech names within healthcare Exactly. Because something like machinery, for example, trading at a reasonable valuation, we're seeing better relative performance, meaning it started to outperform the broader market, but it also is an inflationary beneficiary. Because as you see commodity prices go up, you have to see more investment in the commodity complex. And machinery companies do benefit from this. As you mentioned in healthcare, we're finding things in pharma and biotech. Again, better trends, good valuations, but that gives us a little bit more of a defensive counter cyclical. And and that kind of essential healthcare purchases. What's your worst fear for investors? I think that the worst fear for investors is that inflation does not add at all. There's been a big hope trade that you're going to see inflation roll over quite materially in the near term, which would allow the Fed to back off from some of its most aggressive targets. If that does not happen and we see inflation remain rather elevated in a very hawkish Fed, we likely start looking at that hard landing type of scenario where the Fed has to slam the foot on the brakes a lot faster and a lot harder than people are expecting which means that earnings fall even more and valuations have to fall much further than where they are from here. Yeah, absolutely. And we see the 10-year back above 3% today. We see
1: comments from Yellen that are getting more hawkish. Gina Gopinath certainly uh, at the IMF today uh, sounding more hawkish as well. Cameron, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Cameron Dawson with their inflation playbook. Turning our attention now to the surging oil and energy that are contributing to all of this. The sector continuing to dominate the market. Look at WTI crude climbing back above $122 a barrel now. This is a 3% rally that's extended just the past few hours. We've got NatGas, highest levels since 2008. 15 stocks in the energy ETF are hitting an all-time high today. Exxon, the biggest of them, trading at more than $105 a share now. Uh, let's bring in Rob Thummel. He's senior portfolio manager at Tortoise Capital. Rob, like we had emphasized previously, there had been this discount for a lot of these uh, major producers like Exxon. Now we're seeing them; the prices finally catch back up to 2014. Where do we go from here?
4: Well, you still have a lot of cash in this sector, Kelly, and that's what really investors are looking for. They're looking for high free cash flow yields, high dividend yields. And if you just look across the energy sector, you know, led by Exxon, you've got double digit free cash flow yields that are double the free cash flow yield of the S&P 500. You've got a dividend yield. Um, in Exxon's case, that's double the S&P 500 dividend yield. Other energy stocks are four and five times higher from a dividend yield perspective. So the sector's delivering on a lot of cash, and that's what investors are looking for right now, and and I don't see that changing. There was a note
1: over the weekend where the analyst said,
4: okay, we missed the first
1: 50% in energy, but we're here's where we're going for the next 50%. Is there going to be a next 50%? And where do you think investors can find it?
4: Yeah. So if you look at what where the energy sector is going from here, uh, a couple really big mega things. First of all, energy security. Right. All right. I mean, um, energy security really since February 24th has become really heightened and is really important. And so the energy sector, in particular, the U.S. energy sector can really provide energy security to not only the U.S., but the rest of the world. Also, decarbonization—that's another classic example, right? Uh, we, we, the world, needs to decarbonize. We need to have less carbon, and the energy sector is actually not only embraced but is participating in in this decarbonization trend. And they're just getting started. So the sector not only can provide some really good fundamental uh, a fundamental backdrop, led by high high cash flow, but also some of these technical factors and and, and things that our investors are looking for in the future, um, like decarbonization um, and and the impact that the sector can have is going to Really play out over the next several years. So the sector could just continue to rise as a result of that. All right. So you have
1: some particular ideas like EQT, we've talked about before, the Nat Gas producer, uh, the refiner yep. Valero. You still like Exxon and Chevron. You say the most underappreciated stock is still Chenier. Why?
4: Well, so, so you think about what Chenier is doing. You know, Chenier is the largest exporter of uh, liquefied natural gas uh, in the U.S. Um, if you think about the impact that Chenier's had globally. Um, Europe w- was in a, a lot of trouble to start the year because they were going to run out of natural gas, potentially. 75%, uh, 80% of Chenier's uh, exports have gone to Europe and helped refill the European natural gas storage, which is going to help really brace Europe to get through next winter w- w- in regards to natural gas, and, and ultimately will result in lower natural gas prices. But fundamentally, what I like about Chenier is, and, and the market's not appreciating this, is, the company itself can generate a significant amount of free cash flow year after year after year after year. And that di- and that free cash flow yield is double digits. Um, and that type of double-digit free cash cash flow yield for that duration should not just be priced at what the c- current share price is. It should be significantly higher than that, in our opinion.
1: All right. Well, there you go. It is in the green today. So is Valero, while some of the others, surprisingly, are in the red, despite this pop in oil. Rob, we'll leave it there for now. We'll check back in soon. Thanks, kelly rob thummel with tortoise had a 10-year note top of the hour go up for auction this is a biggie rick santelli how to go what are yields doing
5: it was a nasty auction dog minus d minus is the grade let's go through it shall we the yield at the dutch auction 3.03 percent where was the one issued market trading below 3.02 closer to 3.01 and a half so it tailed badly, and the metrics aren't good. If we look at the bid to cover at 2.41, it's the lightest since November of 21, 63.6 on indirects. That's an important column, Kelly, you know that. Foreign interest are embedded there, the lightest since July of 21, 19.4 in directs, it's the only bright spot there was, and that's domestic players, most likely pension and some big institutional players that need good government collateral. And finally, the dealers at 17%, not good. The 10 auction average is 13%. So a D minus there, and tomorrow, of course, we complete 96. 96- Billion in Treasury supply with 19 billion 30-year uh, bonds. You can see all yields have moved higher. Uh, we're not at the high yields of the day in tens. We're about a basis point away, but we are on track for our fifth close above 3% since November of 2018. Kelly wow. back to you, had that
1: hawkish half-point surprise from the Aussie bank this week, Rick. But give me 20 seconds on the yen because I this is a. Everyone else is fighting inflation, and they seem to be saying, you know, bring it on.
5: Yeah, and uh, I think they're saying bring it on because finally decades and decades of overly involved uh, Bank of Japan and the government has finally taken its toll. Many of us were wondering, can they get away with the types of activities, whether it was purchases of ETFs and equities or just the crazy quantitative easing they've been doing, or playing with their markets literally for years and years. How long could they get away with it? Why is there no repercussions? Well, now we see what the repercussions are. Their currencies getting killed, whether it's against the euro, whether it's against the Chinese yuan or the dollar, and it's going to most likely continue. Yes, they welcome inflation because they need to let interest rates breathe and do what they're supposed to do. That's the key. You can only control and manipulate markets for so long. And eventually, you run out of runway, and I think that's where the Japanese economy is.
1: Now, I'm with you, waiting with bated breath to see where this one goes next. Uh, absolutely. Rick, thank you. As always, Rick Santelli. Coming up, an exclusive interview with the CEO of Stiefel. Back in January, he warned us the market wasn't ready for a conflict in Ukraine. He said oil and the dollar could be significantly higher, and they are. We'll ask what risks he sees on the horizon now. Coming up. Plus, Five Below is riding a five month losing streak. Signet is 60% off its all time high, and Neo is actually on track for its best month in a year. The numbers and narratives to know ahead on Earnings Exchange. We're back after this.
6: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until
5: the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m.
6: The office was shocked.
1: Welcome back. It's been a tough year for banks and financials, which are supposed to be a big winner from higher interest rates. But the sector's down about 10 percent, with key components like JP Morgan down nearly twice that. And now Credit Suisse is warning it'll post a second quarter loss and considering job cuts as it faces losses from the Russia-Ukraine war and weak customer flows. My next guest is head of one of the biggest U.S. investment banks. He warned us the Ukraine conflict and stronger dollar would be a headwind this year. He's been proven right. Shares of his firm, Stiefel, though, are down just under nine percent since January. For more, let's welcome back Ron Krzyzewski. He is the chairman and CEO of Stephal Financial, live from the bank's annual Cross Sector Insight Conference, with hundreds of companies gathered to compare notes on the economy. Ron, it's great to have you, and, and what are your early takeaways?
9: Hey, Kelly, great to be on. You know, first of all, what a difference a year makes. You know, we have 400 companies uh, representing consumer, industrial, tech, energy. So we see a lot of viewpoints. A year ago, Everyone was talking about huge demand, easy money, uh, and maybe transitory inflation. Yet that was a year ago. Today, it doesn't matter what room I walk into; every company's talking the same thing: uh, inflation, tight labor markets, energy costs, and supply chain constraints. the same. It's the same story. You, uh, that's ailing all these companies.
1: Do you think the credit them. Swiss story is, you know, this is their third warning now. They've been going through a restructuring and, and, and kind of some company specific problems. But are there warning uh, sort of signs, signals, whatever that you would take? Away? I mean, listen, JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon said similar things about storm clouds on the horizon. Um, what, how would you characterize the economy and, and the position of the business right now?
9: Well, you know, uh, Kelly, I I think, first of all, in a rising rate environment, uh, you would argue that you should own financials. Uh, The reason that you don't own financials today is that no one wants to own a financial uh, before a recession. So what's weighing on financials is the threat of a recession. And what we really need to talk about and what I'm concerned about going forward is, you know, we all know that bull markets don't die of old age. The, The Fed does something to kill them. And the question is, is what is the Fed going to do? And let me be specific, Kelly. It's pretty baked in. The Fed's going to do 50 in June, 50 in July, and probably 50 in September. My question is, and what I'm concerned about, is after that September uh, increase, the Fed needs to pause. We've had 20 years of rate suppression. We can't reverse it in one year.
1: Wow. Wow. Say that again, no, Ryan. I, you think they need to not not just not do a, a half point hike in September. You want them to pause rate hikes no, altogether?
9: No, no. I think that they. I do think that if we get to two to two and a quarter, that inflation will will be coming in. And I just think that the uh, we need to pause before we go too far, because you know this country asset values in this country are based on twenty years of suppressed interest rates, and uh, you can't fix it all in one year. Wow. And that's, that's my concern. And so I think that once we get to two and two and a quarter, I think it'd be prudent to wait. You know, inflation is a lagging indicator. Uh, we need to see how it comes in before we're jumping to three, three and a half percent, because I do think that will cause a recession in the I, United States.
1: I would characterize this as a risk management. You know, the Bernanke's book t- about Fed uh, history actually emphasizes Listen, risk management is an important thing. It's something that Powell keeps in mind. It's not just about macro variables. We all have to do this kind of thinking through the unexpected outcomes, especially with balance sheet reduction right now. But what if I said to you that if we don't tackle the inflation problem now, like Gina Gopinath and others have been warning today, we're going to potentially be facing several years of persistently high inflation Chronic shortages throughout the economy. Maybe it's better to reset asset values now and and whatever happens with the economy to to get, you know, to nip this.
9: Well, I would say that a pause uh, for a quarter to reflect on the data, to see how inflation is coming in, to see if there's additional oil that comes out of the Middle East to alleviate energy prices. A pause doesn't mean that you're not going to start up again. A pause is going to allow. Uh, everyone to see uh, what's increasing rates and taking real rates probably to zero. What that does to asset value homes, you think about it, it's not something that we can just do really fast. And and I think that's a risk. I, I, for one, think inflation has to be controlled. I also think that, as you said, Kelly, there needs to be a little risk management. I think the proper way to do this is get to two to two and a quarter, and then pause and see what's going on.
1: And a a parting word, if you would, on maybe energy in particular here, you know, we talked to to you at the beginning of the year about strong dollar, Russia, Ukraine fallout. The situation looks worse than ever. And I'm concerned that shortages could be a next step. And in a weird way, if the Fed's more hawkish, maybe it could prevent those shortages from developing that, you know, no one wants to see on something so important.
9: Well, there's no question. I I think there's there's a reason that President Biden's going to Saudi Arabia. I think that there is an understanding that energy costs need to be you know brought to heal, uh, but same with food and and so there are real challenges, and I'm not dismissing those challenges. I just am concerned that you go too far, too fast. I'm repeating myself kelly and <laughs> and you uh you know you kill the patient, okay <laughs> so. Let's, uh, this needs to be done, but uh, we just can't, we can't just go full we'll steam ahead here to three to three and a half percent, uh, as if that's the magical uh, solution to all our problems.
1: No, it's, it, it, you know, like you said, the whole point of the event that you're at right now is to get those frontline perspectives. And, and yours absolutely counts as one of them from your industry at the heart of everything. Ron, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate it.
9: Kelly, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
1: Ron Krzyzewski is the chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Still ahead, the cruise stocks are going in reverse this year with only one positive week in the past two months. Why aren't they benefiting from the travel boom that's helping hotels and airlines, we'll explain. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Intel weighing on the blue chips. Only four names are in the green right now. Caterpillar's one of them. We're back in a moment.
6: Welcome back,
1: everybody. We're near session lows right now. The Dow's down 244. The Nasdaq had been up a half a percent. Now it's down a similar amount, still around 12,107. Here are some of the movers this hour. Watch Roku surging 12% on a report. Its employees are speculating that Netflix could potentially buy it. A source close to the situation telling CNBC there's no truth to these acquisition rumors. Still, Roku shares up 10%, Netflix up less than 2%. And Scott's miracle Grow is on pace for its worst day since November of 2020 After lowering sales guidance for the year, they talked about above-average declines in some of its lawn and grass seed products, higher commodity prices pressuring some of its fixed costs, SMG down 9%. And Spotify is moving higher after the company's first investor day in four years. CEO Daniel X sounding optimistic, saying business is doing well. They expect $100 billion in revenue annually over the next decade. He also says he thinks podcasts have 40 to 50% gross margin potential, and that has Spot up five and a half percent today now to tyler matheson for a cnbc news update tyler
10: all right kelly thank you very much good every good afternoon everyone attorney general merrick garland promising the justice department will continue to do everything it can to protect supreme court justices after this morning's arrest of an armed man near the home of justice brett kavanaugh allegedly told police he was there to kill the conservative justice
5: This kind of behavior is obviously is behavior that we will not tolerate. Threats of violence and actual violence against the justices, of course, strike at the heart of our democracy. and We will do everything we can to prevent them and to hold people who do them accountable.
10: And the Supreme Court today cleared the way for Arizona to execute a 66-year-old man convicted of killing an 8-year-old girl... All the way back in 1984 the death by lethal injection would be the state's second execution since it brought back the death penalty last month after an eight-year pause and before he boarded air force one for his trip to california today president biden told reporters he thinks voters in last night's primary sent a clear message they want both parties to do something about crime and gun violence tonight on the news with shep smith a special diet that could get diabetes patients off of expensive medications. Kelly, back to
1: you. All right, Tyler, thanks, and I'll see you soon. Still ahead, Signet, Neo, and Five Below on deck to report results. Near-term options implying a 14% move in one of the stocks. We'll tell you which one and how to trade each into those results right after this. welcome back to the exchange earnings season is winding down but we still have some big consumer names left and we'll give you the action the story and the trade on three set to report all of which by the way have zero sell ratings on the street the first one is five below which is down 35 percent this year as low-cost retailers see their margins squeezed by inflation investors watching inventory levels and consumer spending and full year guidance our Lauren Thomas has the story on five below today and Craig Johnson has our trades he is chief market technician at Piper Sandler welcome to both of you. And Lauren, I think I was just reading some Dollarama headlines. You know, these discounters, we saw Dollar Tree, Dollar General perform really well during the season, but what about Five Below?
11: Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you just mentioned, that stock has been under pressure so far this year. I think there is some fear priced into this name. Um, to your point, because of th- those margins being under pressure, you know, the theme this this earnings season really across the retail industry um, is bloated inventory levels. Right. And, and there's certainly concern at five below like there are at all of these companies, um, be it Target or, or Dollarama, uh, that those inventories will pile up and then weigh ultimately on the bottom line. One thing though that I wanted to call out, it, it's unique to Five Below, but this is a retailer that has really benefited in the past from that hot new item. And I wanted to mention this to you, Kelly, because I know you, you have younger children. Uh, do you remember fidget spinners oh, or yeah. the DIY slime trend, right? You know, the glue <laughs> that you needed to make that slime. I mean, these, these are trends, um, you know, particularly among children, but really drove up Five Below sales um, in, in past years and, and from the analysts that I've spoken to ahead of this print. That is really a concern that we haven't seen a hot new item in a while. Um, so you know, I'm curious if your kids have uh, have mentioned anything that could particularly be a boon for uh, for five below. Yeah, um, sadly, no. But again, no. we're also watching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's that's an issue. And again, just just watching to see. I think there is there is an expectation that that outlook um, could be revised again because of, of, of some of these inflation pressures um, there. Certain retailers uh, have said that they have not yet seen the benefit from the trade down effect from the, the consumer. You might think that, you know, five below would be a place where people go for
1: deals. Right. Um,
11: but, you know, we're going to watch and see this quarter if, if that's happened. Big
1: difference with them also, Craig, they don't sell, you know, milk and groceries or anything like that unless you count troll uh, octopus snacks which sometimes i do but what would you do with the stock here
12: well i guess what i would do just if i step back and just look at the chart you can see on the chart that uh, we've got you're just still making these lower highs in here and multiple times you've come right up to that downtrend resistance line and failed it looks like to me that we might get a little bit of a short-term trade in here but I think the best case scenario for five below is you trade back up to that uh, 50-day moving average or maybe even back up to the 200-day moving average at 176. And any sort of failure below that is just going to suggest another leg is lower. So I guess I'd play it for the relief rally. And Mm -hmm. I'd also just mention, Kelly, I'm watching a lot of these retailers target as an example. They come in, they miss a number, they're quickly getting bought. So these stocks are sort of on the miss getting de-risked after they come to the confessional and miss and you're seeing these nice pops and trades that come into them. And perhaps a uh, five below could fit into that category. But again, to change a longer-term trend, we need to reverse that long-term downtrend. And that, uh, that's going to require a close above 176. And I think that's going to be a challenge.
1: Wow, above 176, and we're all the way down at 135. And the fidget spinners, by the way, are still a big hit with my husband. But again, I don't think that's driving a lot of uh, (laughs) foot traffic trends. Lauren, stay right there. We're going to talk some Signet Jewelers now, which is also down substantially this year, about 28%. Carries 15% short interest, a little bit of a risk there around a short squeeze. They're the parent company of names like Kay and Zales hoping for a bigger lift from the rebound in weddings, but concerns about a spending slowdown are weighing and they had a strong 2021. And is that the main story, Lauren, that they're just kind of in a post-pandemic hangover period like many else? Right, exactly. I mean, it's really incredible.
11: Jewelry within retail more broadly, jewelry was one category that was pretty resilient um, throughout COVID. And, and you mentioned a wedding boom. We're expecting um, the most weddings in 2022 um, in in over four decades. And wow. this is something that Signet is certainly hope it, hoping to uh, to benefit on. Yeah, more than, than two million weddings. Um, I actually have one shameless plug later this year. And, you know, driving <laughs> that trend, right? You think of all the the diamonds that are, are required, right? Whether it's the, the bride and the groom and the engagement w- rings. And, and and certainly this is a company that's trying to sell other members within that, that wedding party as well. Um, but that is, you know, coming off of an incredible 2021, this retailer does have some tough comps, right? It's, it's up against a really strong year. Um, so I think that's that's a concern. Um, it's going to be, I think a slowdown is, is inevitable at some point. Um, but also this retailer has really invested in digital. So it's really invested in digital across its brands. um, It's e-commerce sales were up twofold in 2021 from prior year levels. But at, at the same time, of course, that does come with added logistics expenses, you know, that are going to be a head a headwind um, on profits in the near term. Now
1: I want to be like, show us the ring, show us the ring. But that was seems inappropriate. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
11: Craig, no, it's, it's a good it's a good ring. He, Aww, he did good.
1: <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Huge congrats. Craig, let's turn to you on the stock. What are you watching oh, here? Thank you.
12: Well, while they're showing the ring, well, it's also show the chart. And yeah. if we look at the chart in here, you know, <laughs> we're in this nice downward trending price channel and uh, that doesn't appear to be changing at this point in time. So I hope the wedding still takes place and uh, <laughs> we're below that 50 and 200-day moving average. And to get any sort of change in trend here, we're going to really need to see some sort of uh, close above $68 to reverse that downtrend. And as of now, that doesn't look like uh, that is the case. So yeah. Sure. Uh, Lower for now. And uh, for Signet at this point,
1: yes, yeah, 61 So that one, may be a little bit more achievable, about a 10 percent uh, move to the upside. It would take and maybe we'll get to that. This was the name we were teasing that options are pricing maybe a 14 percent move tonight. But we'll see which direction that goes. All right. Let's turn our attention away from retail. How about electric cars? Neo, the car company, electric car company, down 35 percent this year. The Shanghai lockdowns cut into production, dragging their deliveries down. It's a key metric to watch. But shares have been doing better over the past month. Let's get all the straight scoop from Phil Lebeau. Phil.
9: You know, Kelly, I think what people are going to be looking for from Neo is the commentary about how quickly they expect sales to rebound as we see the COVID lockdowns come off in Shanghai and other parts of China. As that happens, do they expect to go back on the same growth trajectory that was expected, let's say, last year or the year before Some believe that that will happen, given the fact that you have a country that is very intent on growing electric vehicle adoption. And as a result, you should expect, or many do expect, that the Chinese EV players Will once again get back to the growth that they exhibited before this latest surge of COVID cases and the Shanghai lockdown. So that's really going to be the focus when we hear from uh, Neo over the next uh, 24 hours.
1: It's amazing, Craig, the uh, success Elon Musk has had in preventing us from talking about any other electric car maker lately. There was also a great takeout on uh, Rivian's struggles in the journal. So where does Neo fall? Not fundamentally so much. I know Phil gave us those details, but for you, as you look at the stock charts, you know, does this recent month uptrend tell you anything?
12: Yeah, this is probably the most bullish setup of the uh, three charts we were discussing here today. We pulled back right to those prior highs we had seen in 2018, and it looks like a lot of the selling exhaustion is perhaps done at that area of support. And then shorter term, we've just come in and we've uh, reversed the the downtrend um, at this point in time. And we still need to get back above that 200-day moving average is what we need to ultimately do. And right now, um, I, I would say we're on our way to go and do that. So I think we got a nice setup for a nice uh, sort of relief rally here back into overhead resistance. And we're going to be watching, again, the 200 day at 28.25. And then also those highs for May 21 at about 31.22. Are the levels I'm watching. And while it seems like a great chart, I'd still take the Ford Bronco over an electric vehicle, though. I got to be <laughs> honest with you, Kelly.
1: Even with gas prices where they are right now, come on. If someone
12: handed you an it EV- doesn't matter. Still take the Bronco.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll get you an electric one. Uh, Craig and Phil, thank you very much. We appreciate it today uh, joining us for this edition of Earnings Exchange. As we go, let's get a quick check on stocks which are at fresh session lows across the board. The Dow is down 344 points or 1% right now. The S&P is actually the worst performer today, down 1.2%. Coming up, the hotel and airline CEOs have been bullish on the summer travel season, but it's choppy for the cruise lines. We'll talk about why they've struggled. They're down another 5% today. And as we go, this month we are offering financial planning tips to secure your money and your future. Here is Sharon Epperson. Here's a tip for your money, your future. For investors, navigating inflation requires having a well-diversified portfolio with growth and value stocks to help boost total returns, along with interest from cash and bonds. Dividend-paying stocks that pay a consistent dividend also can help weather market volatility. A dividend is a portion of a company's earnings that are paid out as a reward to shareholders, often by companies that have strong, predictable cash flow. So even as stock prices
7: slide, holdings that pay a steady dividend may offer some stability. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson.
1: Welcome back. Hotel and airline stocks have been climbing over the past three months. Marriott, for instance, up more than 14 percent. But it's a different story for the cruise lines. Carnival falling about the same amount during the same period. Seema Modi is here now with a look at what's behind this divergence. Seema?
13: Yeah. Kelly, cruise lines are not seeing the type of robust demand hotels and airlines are witnessing. Volumes are gradually improving, specifically for small ships and shorter itineraries to the Caribbean. But channel checks conducted by Morgan Stanley found that the single biggest issue, according to travel agents, is that pre-departure test that requires individuals returning to the U.S. to present a negative COVID test. Guests are worried about being stuck on a ship if they test positive. More than half of international travelers, according to a U.S. travel survey, found that the added uncertainty of a potentially having to cancel a trip due to testing positive would discourage them from traveling to our country. And that's significant given that the cruise lines are certainly global businesses, but heavily dependent on the U.S. Morgan Stanley says the risk now of grow- is now growing for further equity being raised. And that's why you're seeing the cruise lines uh, down much more than the other travel stocks from their pre-pandemic highs, Kelly.
1: Yeah, we hear this concern all the time. So, what's the the possible time frame for the White House lifting this testing requirement?
13: Well, that's it. That's it. There is no timeline that has been presented yet from the White House, Kelly, they have not articulated the metrics that they're using as to when they would feel comfortable lifting this requirement. This, as other countries like the UK, the Italy, Greece, among others, have lifted that requirement, uh, pressure is certainly growing on Washington. Last night, uh, bipartisan support from over 40 mayors from San Francisco to Miami pending a letter to the White House saying that this specific testing requirement is stopping international travelers from visiting their respective cities, and that's tourism dollars that is lost. The international traveler, Kelly, you and I have discussed this, spends four times more than a domestic traveler when they visit the US.
1: It's a huge money pot, uh, that is for sure. Sima, thank you so much, we appreciate it, Sima Modi. Still ahead, trading volumes have surged over the past two years, but you wouldn't know it from how shares of the exchanges themselves have been doing. We'll talk to Virtue CEO, Doug Sifu, about whether winter is coming for the whole stock market, next. Welcome back. Our tough times coming for the stock trading business. SEC Chair Gary Gensler is tackling an arrangement at the heart of our current market structure and something that has facilitated free retail trading, so-called payment for order flow. His proposals could diminish the influence of market makers like our next guest. Joining us now from the Piper Sandler Global Exchange Conference is Doug Sifu. He is the CEO of Virtue Financial, and he's with our very own Bob Pisani. Bob
6: Hello, Kelly. Uh, So Chair Gensler has just given a major speech here uh, at the Piper Sandler Exchange Conference. And Doug, uh, he's not happy about payment for order flow. Now, this is the process whereby brokers send their orders to market makers like you, Virtu. He says it's riddled with conflicts of interest. He's not happy about the fact that he says there's only a few market makers that are really doing this. Uh, He wants more competition out there. Is the average retail trader being disadvantaged here?
8: I mean, fundamentally, the answer is no, and I think uh, uh, payment for order flow is something that's been around for 20 to 30 years, and it really has fostered innovation and competition within the marketplace. And I should say that within the marketplace, we have roughly 250 broker-dealer wealth management clients that send us retail orders. 95% of them don't take a rebate or payment for order flow. So again, the, the chair, with all due respect, is conflating the issue of payment for order flow with the ecosystem that has evolved in this country for retail trading which has really enabled retail investors to have instantaneous execution at essentially zero commission on 8,000 listed names. Yeah. You know, the cliche that
6: markets have never been better is
8: actually factually
6: correct. Yeah, I have been covering the markets for 32 years at yep. CNBC, and I, my impression is the retail investor has never had it better. But what's wrong with more competition? I mean, this is what Gensler is talking about. So, for example, he's floated this proposal about let's do auctions for the retail people, that there's too much power concentrated in your hands, Virtu's hands, Citadel Securities, two, two of the main market makers out there. Is there a problem with having auctions?
8: No, I, look, I, we fundamentally advert Virtu and, and every market participant says we, we welcome competition. We're not anti lit exchanges. And today, indeed, broker-dealers, retail broker-dealers, are free to send their orders to exchanges, to ATSs or dark pools, or, or, or to wholesalers. There's no obligation for them to send it to Virtu and Citil. We provide a service. We provide guaranteed execution. We provide meaningful price improvement. $12 billion last year in meaningful price improvement. So we welcome competition from lit exchanges. Yeah. We've put in proposals to say that lit exchanges should be put on a more fair level playing field with wholesalers. We welcome that because Bob, we're not internalizing all these orders. It costs us tens and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to source yeah. price improved
6: liquidity on exchanges and provide well,
8: that well, back one to of our clients. the that
6: you've said for years is you do provide price improvement. Yep. You, you do actually help improve. You get a better price for it. Can you explain briefly how you do that? Because Chair Gensler has been very skeptical about that.
8: Well, I'm not sure he's been so skeptical about it. I think some of the data, and he, he spoke about it today, the need for a reform of rule 605. So essentially, the rule is antiquated. It doesn't really cover the amount of what we call size improvement. And we've been very upfront and very transparent about providing that level of data. So what that means is, in the 8,000 names, to the extent there's not liquidity on a, on a lit exchange, fundamentally, the wholesalers are providing infinite liquidity at the NBBO or the inside price. So if we get an order for 1,000 shares in Reg NMS stock that no one's ever heard of, and there's 200 shares on NASDAQ in New York, we fill out 1,000 shares at that inside price. That's meaningful liquidity. 55% of the orders that we received, Bob, we provide size improvement in a complete you know, as he calls it, an auction environment, who's going to provide yeah. that? The, so the, the
6: liquidity fairy? I mean, it just doesn't exist. This is a very complicated proposal. Uh, there's not really a rules that's being proposed. Chair Gensler is floating this idea, yeah. and there's the implication is maybe... In a few months, we'll make a rule proposal. Do you think, think anything is going to happen here? Uh, do you think there's actually going to be a rule proposed, or are we just going to try to get more transparency, more information? My Gensler may have to settle for you providing more information on exactly how much it costs for payment for order flow.
8: We're all about that. I mean, whatever the rule is in terms of providing transparency around how much payment for order flow, price improvement, set it at the midpoint, we're all ears. We've made those proposals. It's a little bit like punching a ghost right now, right? Because they they have these high-level statements that aren't really backed by any data, right? We've provided real data about what we do. We welcome the opportunity. We would welcome a round table. I don't know why the chair is not willing to engage the industry directly on this. I'd be happy to come with him on this program. And you're
6: saying he hasn't talked to you? You're you're one of the biggest market makers in the United States. Are you saying he hasn't talked to you? (laughs) I I have spoken to the chair.
8: Uh, I would like some more time with him. And I think, you know, him coming to the industry and coming to Virtue and understanding what we do and how, ultimately, how competitive the marketplace is. He talks about two or three wholesalers. There's about 10 of us now. UBS is involved, uh, Jane, Jane Street, Jump Trading, Hudson River Trading, uh, Susquehanna, Two Sigma. Anybody else can enter this marketplace. There's not a barrier to entry. There's not like an admission ticket that you need. Right, it's a competitive marketplace. Every day we're banging heads with Citadel Securities to provide the best service and the best price to 250 clients. And some days we lose, and some days we
6: win. We'll see if this goes anywhere, but Doug Seafood, CEO of Virtu, thanks very much for joining us. And Kelly, I think the key point here is when I started with CNBC in 1990, it was not unusual for a trade to cost about 1% when you engage in the actual trade itself. And compared to today, where you're still dealing with $0 commissions, the question is exactly how much does it really cost for a payment for order flow, whatever that cost is, it's a tiny fraction of what it was more than 30 years ago. So there really is something to the idea that the retail investor has never gotten it better. But with that said, maybe we still should have more competition out there. the Chairman brought up an interesting point today.
1: Well, the debate is reaching a frenzy and really heating up. Bob, thanks for bringing us that important interview. We appreciate it. Our Bob Vasani with Doug Sifu. Coming up, a lack of listings. Incredibly tight housing supply helped push mortgage demand to levels not seen in two decades. Are we about to see a flood of properties come onto the market or not? Stay with us. One more thing before we go, mortgage demand plunging last week to levels not seen in more than 20 years. Diana Olick is here now with the details, Diana.
7: Well, Kelly, it actually fell to the lowest level in 22 years last week, as interest rates went on the upswing again, demand now about half of what it was a year ago. The average rate on the 30-year fixed had fallen back a little bit in May, but rose again last week from 5.33% to 5.4%, that according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, and that's for loans with 20% down. Just as a comparison, that rate was 3.15% a year ago. As a result, refinance demand continues to tank, as you would expect, but the bigger pain point seems to be for home buyers. Purchase mortgage demand fell 7% for the week and was 21% below where it was a year ago. The housing market has clearly taken a sharp turn after the red-hot buying spree spurred by COVID. Sales are falling, but prices are still rising. A new report from CoreLogic this week showed prices still gaining in April, up close to 21% nationally from a year ago. And that's because while there is some new supply coming onto the market and homes are sitting slightly longer, supply is still historically low. Large cities in the south, especially Florida, see, The both the hottest prices and the lowest supply, and unfortunately, the home builders haven't been helping much with housing starts falling in April. And we'll get those numbers for May coming up next week, Kelly.
1: You know, you make an interesting point because we've been watching lumber prices fall as well as a leading indicator for building. And if you wanted home prices to fall, you'd actually want lumber prices going up because that would tell you that there was at least demand for a significant amount of inventory still coming online. If the opposite's happening, then maybe it's actually bullish for home prices.
7: Uh, maybe. I mean, we keep expecting home prices to soften. That is the prediction that they will eventually soften. But again, you have this very bizarre market where there's still a lot of the demand out there and no supply. And even though mortgage rates are rising, some people still want to buy. They want to get in. And that's keeping prices higher, Kelly.
1: There's that chart of lumber that I referenced. Uh, just an incredible uh, up and down roller coaster move really over the last couple of years. And we're now close to an nadir. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Diana Olick reporting. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.